Go ahead and take your Bibles and have them open around Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 2, 21 to begin with. There's some verses listed in the bulletin for today's sermon, but we're going to be going through lots of verses actually today. And we have been, as I said when we started the service, we've been going through a marriage series. And so today, we're going to continue that series, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, broken oneness. So let's pray as we come to uh, God's Word throughout this sermon this morning. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You so much for Your goodness and mercy to us. I pray that You would make this Word come alive in our hearts and minds this morning. Would You make it real to us? Would You see how it not only applies to marriage, but every relationship that we're in? And Father, this, these are foundational uh, sermon series here, foundational for us to build off of. And so this has high impact in our lives today, and so I pray that you would help us to understand it and illuminate it by the power of your Spirit. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so far, we have seen that God is the great architect and builder of marriage. His blueprint is pointed out in Genesis 2.24. We've talked about this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That re- so to remind you, we are to leave our mother and father when we get married. Because why? Because marriage is the most important of all human relationships. It's the original design. Secondly, uh, we are to cleave and hold fast to our spouse. Because of its importance, marriage is the most permanent human relationship God established on this earth. Children may come and children hopefully may go. But our family unit, as far as husband and wife are should remain permanent. The third thing that we see here is that we are to become one flesh when we get married, meaning that this is the most intimate, the most complete, the most total of all human relationships. So that was our first sermon. Our second sermon a few weeks ago, we looked at what it's like to be made in the image of God. So this couple here, they were made in the image of God. What does it look like to be persons? To be rational, creative, moral, and ruling creatures. What does that look like? To set the world, uh, to be set in the world, to be displayed uh, for the glory of God and to proclaim His great, uh, His great name. If a man and woman are to be made in the image of the Creator God, and we think about the Creator God in three persons, remember we talked about that, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. They are, if you will, one flesh, one spirit, you know, I'm just using analogies there to kind of get our mind around that. Therefore, we saw that the great and ultimate model of marriage is actually because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that person in one. Okay, we saw then that marriage is based on God Himself. That's why it's important to us as Christians. Behind the plan is the planner. God says, I want you to be like me and to be like me in this likeness. So the union of oneness in marriage is not only a picture of the oneness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, but furthermore, we saw that when we come to the New Testament, it says that marriage points to something greater, which is Christ's relationship with the church. It's a, it's a living illustration to show what it is like. So as one commentator put it, 
The, es- the essential aspect of unity in the church is harmony in the Christian household. The household is regarded as the subunit or microcosm of Christian society, the church, which Paul describes as God's household in Ephesians. That is the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be beautiful. However, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem, don't we? There is a great barrier to biblical oneness that the Lord would have us to be or to have in marriage. And marriages then are in effect um, uh, gripped by this great barrier to oneness. It's, it's almost like, if you will, a picture it. You know, one of the first pictures I had of this was the, the, the Titanic coming upon the great iceberg that it hit. And so the story is, is that the, the, the captain or whoever was running the ship at the time, I can't remember the guy's name, but whoever was looking out said, there's, there's icebergs out there. But it's no big deal. This is that big ship that God Himself can't sink. But what was behind the tip of that iceberg? What was behind that? What was below that? It was what's called a bummock. It's a huge portion of the iceberg that was unseen. And if we don't see this bummock here, if we don't see it, it will destroy us and our marriages. So today, we're going to look at this. We're going to try to understand the great barrier in light of number one, perfect oneness. What is perfect oneness? What does that have to do with what I'm talking about? Number two, broken oneness. How did that occur? What happened? And number three, God's restored oneness. We'll end with that. So let's think about perfect oneness first. I want you to begin with me in Genesis chapter 2. So flip over in your Bible there. Genesis chapter 2, and let's begin with this first wedding ceremony between man and woman. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that, uh, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That's beautiful. So let me ask you a profound question about this. I want you to think about this just a little bit. I want to ask you this profound question. Who made the choice to bring these two together? Have you ever thought about that? Who made the choice to bring these two together? God did. So what you're saying is that they didn't have to necessarily look at each other and go, oh, and fall in love? Like every Disney princess movie that ever was? Isn't that right, AJ? Every one of them are all like that. They didn't just fall in love like that? You know, around that simple little word that we really can't quite define? Because we love our wives and we love peace at the same time. And you know, you go, well, what does that mean exactly? No, what happened here is, is that God brought these two together. He brought them together. And so I want you to think about that, that profound question, in light of your mate today. I want you to think about that. And if you're here and you're single, I want you to think about that in terms of your future mate. The question is this, are you looking for love? And you could, country music fans could go in all the wrong places. Are you looking for love? 
Or are you looking for God's will for you? What is it? Why is this profound? Because it's glaring in the text. It was the Lord who brought them together. And so in the biblical blueprint that He set out for them, God, God had, had, had displayed before them the knowledge that they had been brought together by Him. That they were being committed together in a covenant with Him and with each other for life. And this is God's way. Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 19 as we discussed in the, in, in the earlier part of the series. Now let me ask you another profound question and that's this. Do you think that the two people whom God has brought together would have problems. I mean, they've been brought together by God, so how could they have problems? Hmm. You mean to tell me, Patrick, that the two people that God just brought together have some issues? Well, they're going to, and we're going to look at that and figure out how that works out. But even in today's world, if you were to say, like if I were to, if I were to tell you guys a story about Kristen and I, one of the aspects of the story is, is that I was reading in Genesis and I was reading about Abraham sending for Isaac a wife. And I'm like, it's interesting. Abraham sends his, his, one of his slaves to get a wife for his son Isaac. And Isaac's not out there going, I think I love her. He's saying, you go get a woman for him, a wife for him. So he sends this guy, and he finds her. God reveals it to him. And so I said, well, if it worked for Isaac, it's got to work for me. And so I started praying, Lord, you find a wife for me. You find a wife for me. But let me tell you something. Do you think Chris and I have a perfect marriage? No. It's mostly my fault, but no. <laughs> Is there anyone here who does? Please raise your hand. I'd like to see the, the confessions and I'd like to hear about a perfect marriage. Everybody knows it's true. So what's going on here? What is the issue? There is something here. That, and if you have not faced up to it, see again, so much of the time, and I hate it for you young people, so much of the time for you young people, you're so inundated by media where it shows these perfect relationships. You know, it hit me one day, because when I was a kid, my dad watched all the James Bond stuff, so I'd watch all the James Bond stuff. I'm like, he's never in love with the same woman. It's interesting to me. <laughs> Even like Indiana Jones, it's like, it's never the same woman. It's like he's in love with someone else. See, the storyline has to create some new adventure thing, or something like that. And at least some of them are real, you know, in terms of, of reality, but most of the time, it's this... Ah, I'm in love and we're forever. And that's not the way it really is. There's an issue. We have to come to grips with it. And the issue is this, if we haven't faced it and, and get into that intimate relationship, and then we're in that place where the doors are closed, the mask comes off, the honeymoon is over, and we begin our daily routine. If we do not understand the foundational issue here in the passage... We're going to be blindsided. And it's going to raise its ugly head and it will destroy your marriage. You can't hide from it. You have to come to grips with it. It is the great barrier to oneness. And so first, let's look at all as we kind of put it in context. Let's look at all at the couple here as they lived in perfect oneness. Look at verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2. Look at the text. It says, And the man and his wife were both naked 
and were not ashamed. Now, the moment you read that that passage, all sorts of things come through your mind. But I want you to know that this is beautiful. It's more beautiful than you can ever imagine. Here on a human perspective, you have an absolutely perfect marital relationship. I want you to see that. You have a perfect man who's perfect in body and soul. There's no sin. You have a perfect woman, perfect, perfect in body, perfect in soul. There's no sin. So here you are in, in this perfect situation, this perfect place, a perfect relationship, and you have to get it that they're in perfect relationship not only with one another, but with their God. Eve would say, I don't have to hide. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to be ashamed. There's nothing between us. Adam could say, I and God are one, even I are one. We're in a perfect relationship. We are totally, absolutely one. So much so that there's nothing between us. Not even clothing. One verse. One verse. One little verse of perspective. Uh, of perfection. A, a little snapshot of an unspoiled relationship. Do you ever read this passage and wonder what was that like? I mean, I picture both of them as just these perfect human beings like never before ever seen. Charles Atlas, he has nothing on Adam. You see, what is something beautiful is here. But the oneness was broken. You know the story, but let's look at it again afresh and think about it. Our second point is this, broken oneness. What happens? We see this perfect oneness, and now we're moving in this broken What happened? God said, and flip over to Genesis 3 with me. Go ahead and flip there if you're not there. Genesis chapter 3. God had told them not to eat of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but in Genesis chapter 3, an insurrection occurs. Verse 6, look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and then it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. Verse 7, then both of their eyes were opened. What does that mean? Both of their eyes were opened. It means that their hearts and their minds and their understanding was open. And that they knew they were naked. They looked and for the first time they are mentally aware that they're naked. And so the text says that they, they sewed leaves together and made themselves loincloths to cover themselves. And here's the deal. People have been doing that ever since. Covering up. Now, don't get tied up here over covering up the flesh. It's, it's a deeper issue than that. It's not just covering up the flesh. There's a part of this that is more, more, much more profoundly deeper than that. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What we see here is they did the same thing to God. They, they, 
they, they covered themselves. He came to them in the cool of the evening. And, and what we get from this passage is that that was pretty much a regular occurrence. God came and was with man, and they talked. I don't know what that looks like. I'm just telling you, but that's what the text tells us. And so God was there, and He wants to be with them. And where are they? They're hiding, hiding from Him. Why? What happened to Adam? What happened to Eve? What happened to God in their relationship? This can be said in many different ways, but look at the reality of the text. What were God and Adam doing before this event? God and Adam were walking again in the cool of the garden together. They were talking. There was absolutely nothing between them. They had a perfect relationship. He was not afraid of God. There was no need to hide. They were one. And they were one. And we have to understand it. Not one is God, but one is creator and one is created. Adam knew his place. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the God... Uh, the Lord God said, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is death? Death is separation. I went to uh, Carrie's grandmother's funeral this week. and It was a beautiful uh, uh, celebration there at Redeemer Presbyterian Church where she was a member and um, she's, she, she, her body was there in that casket, but she's not there. Death is separation. It's separation. And so Adam did not physically lay down and die at this point because there's grace. God gave grace here. But he and God who had been one, who had been separated, they had been separated. Broken oneness with God. It is your sin that has separated you from God. And this is clear and it must not ever be ignored. But I want you to focus today on a second aspect to this brokenness. Because not only is there brokenness between God and man, but between man and man as well. And specifically here, man and his wife. Again, they saw that they were naked and they covered up. And what were they before this? They were one. They were completely one. There was nothing between them. But when man disobeyed God, the effect of sin was that they were not only separated from God, but they were separated from each other. At one moment, they were naked and unashamed, and at the next moment, they were ripped apart. Separated. Naked. They wanted to cover up. You have to understand, not just their body parts. Again, there's something deeper here. They wanted to cover up themselves. Wanted to cover up themselves because they had been ripped apart in relationship from God and from one another. There's something wrong in the world and we all know it. You can't read the newspaper and not see it. You can't walk into your family unit and not spend a couple hours together and not see it. It's glaring. We all know this. We could put a name on it, 
Uh, we could label it, but first of all, let's look at the reality of it because I feel like sometimes it's just an abstraction. So let's look at the reality. What is the reality? Turn with me to Isaiah 47, please. Isaiah 47, verse 8. You could go to many passages throughout the Scripture to see this, but here is the essence of the reality of this thing, the great barrier that's beyond the surface. The context of this verse is God's evaluation. The reality of this thing is, 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 is evident in what He's talking about to Babylon here, or in Babylon here. Look at verse 8. 47.8, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Think about that. I am, and there is no one besides me. That's what God is saying to the people here. That's who you think you are. I am, and there is no one besides me. This people has a great barrier to oneness. This is what causes it. This is the center of it. Let's look again. Flip on over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Again, another perhaps more well-known passage, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep have gone astray, we have turned to what? Does the text say that we've turned to stealing? Has it said that we've turned to adultery? Has it said that we've turned to murder? No, it doesn't say that at all, does it? What does it say? It says, no, everyone has turned to what? His own way. His own way. What is this? What is this that we're talking about? It is something that, that just comes up inside us. Anything that keeps me from what I want, that's what it is. I want. This, is, this, was, the, this was the fall. This was the situation. This is what they did when they ate of that fruit that God told them not to eat. And if you look at the words of the serpent, he led them to this place. Satan led them to this you will be like God. And that's how it has affected us. We want to be God. So in terms of marriage, you have a husband and a wife. Good persons on the surface. Pleasant, easy to communicate with, loving, liked by others. But the Bible says what? All have gone astray. Everybody's gone astray except Patrick and Kristen. No, 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 no. That's not how it works here in the Scripture. Everyone has gone astray. That's what you have to grapple with and understand as the foundation here. Everyone has gone away. So deep down is the iceberg. And what is that? That iceberg, it's I am. And there's no one else but me. And you better please me, especially the way I want to be pleased. This is how we think. This is the reality of where we are in this. And the the truth of the matter is that there's only one in the entire universe who can claim this reality. And it's God. It's God. The triune God can claim this. No one else can. So let's kind of list out some of the everyday problems then that we'll see from this reality, okay? Number one, money. I want a boat, the man says. 
The woman says, I want a coat. I want a boat, I want a coat. Who gets that with the money that's left over after paying all the bills? Hmm, is it a matter of money? It's not a matter of money, is it? It's a matter of I want. It's a matter of I am. What about sex? No, it's not sex. Sex is not the issue. It's, a, it's, it's the barrier behind the sex. It's the desires. What about children? I want our children to do this. Well, I'd like our children to do that. It's what I want. What about work? What about little things like toilet seats? Up and down, down or up? What about toothpaste? Squeeze it in the middle, squeeze it at the end. What about toilet paper? Run this way or run that way? What about the TV channel? I want to watch this. No, I'd rather watch this. How do we solve that problem in our modern day? Everybody has a stinking TV in the room, don't they? It's crazy. Do you see it? You know it's true. What about a restaurant? Guys, you say, hey, uh, where do you want to go? Well, I don't know. Where do you want to go? Hey, I'd like to go get steak. Well, I don't really want steak. <laughs> All right, then. You see? But what is all this? What is behind all this? Behind all this is what the Scripture calls the root of sin. The root of sin. Sin is in the seat of the heart of man. And from the center influences the intellect. It influences the will. It influences the affections. In fact, the Scripture says it influences the whole man. And this, this is the thing that let God uses many things to lead people to Christ. This is what He used to lead me to Christ. Because not only did I see this in my own heart, but I saw this in the world. Nothing else makes sense to me but sin. When I see the news, I'm like, why are those people fighting? That's the craziest thing in the world. Why are they fighting over that? What is all that about? It's sin. Have you ever tried to get something from someone like at a counter or maybe you're in Walmart and you've got some employee arguing with you and it's like, what is this about? I thought your job was to please me. No, it's not. I want to argue with you. My wife and I went into this place one time and we, there's a coffee table in our, in our living room. And, you know, they're mass-produced. So the one she saw looks different in color a little bit. The wood grain does. So she asked the guy, can I get that one? He says, no, that's the display model. I said, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Are you trying to sell things or you just want to keep a display model? I said, get your manager. He brought the manager over there. The manager said, pull the box off. <laughs> I mean, this was, he says, will you pull the box off? The guy said, sure. He said, okay, lift this one out. Now set that one up there and let it be the display model. Let her take this one. You see what I'm saying? Sin is at the root of it all. Sin is there. And when it comes to being in a relationship with a man and a woman, it finds all sorts of expression through our bodies and through our actions and through our attitudes and through our relationship there as a whole. Sin will find a way. Again, it's abstract if we look out there, but if we look at a, a woman who is being unfaithful to her husband, or we look at a husband who's a, 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 who is abusing his wife, we could say, yeah, that's sin, that's sin right there. But when we just look at ourselves, sometimes we don't see it as easy, do we? So we have to recognize that this is reality. This is what the Bible teaches us from the very beginning. And so over and over on the outside, things look good and we're trying to be one, but we knock each other out, we devour each other, and then we 
we, we put that oneness at risk. Perhaps this makes for great sitcoms, but it does not make for great life. It just doesn't. There's pain, there's hurt, there's division, there's destruction in real life. But let me tell you something. God has an answer. He has an incredible answer for us. God restored oneness. And this comes with the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? It's, it's just really simple. There was a man who came, and he was also God. And he came for this one reason. And he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And his name was Jesus. It's a historical fact. You can't deny it. You just can't. It's all over the place. It's not only in four Gospels. It's not only in the letters of the New Testament. It's all over history. You can't deny it. People, you know, at Easter, it's always funny. They'll come on TV and they'll say, is this the real historical Christ? Real, real scholars don't argue with that anymore because everybody knows it's a proven fact. He lived. Now, the question is, what are you going to do with him? Okay? So what he did was, is he came to give his life. And he, he died on a cross. Now, he taught us a lot of things along the way. Because he was proving who he was through his words and his works. And that's what he was doing. He was showing, I am God's son. That's why everybody was amazed at his teaching. That's why everybody was amazed at his miracles. But he came for that purpose, to die. And so he went on the cross. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And then he died. And if it, that were it, it would be over. You know, we would be like, okay, that was a great, he was a great moral man, fantastic. He's just like Buddha and... And Gandhi and the rest of them. He had some wise words and it's wonderful, but he did stay in the grave. He rose again from the dead. That changes everything. That screams, that's a new resurrection. That's newness. That's new life. And that's basically what he said through his resurrection is, I have come to give you life. Watch the life come up out of the grave. In three days, I'll raise this temple. I'll tear it down, I'll raise it up. Now that is also, it's hard to argue against the facts that it's true. Because the facts are the facts. There is no body. They can't find it. Never found it. And they've tried to prove it. It was hidden, it was taken, it was this, it was that, or whatever else. But the, they didn't, it's just, the, the facts point to the truth that he raised from the dead. So he appeared to over 500 people, the scripture says. And then he ascended into heaven. And what the scripture says is he's coming back. So what does that mean for all of us? What it means is, is that because of that, God came to restore the oneness with his people. He came to restore, first of all, the relationship with him. And then second of all, and very close to it, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if your wife's not your neighbor, if your husband's not your neighbor, I don't know who your neighbor is. Okay? So it changes things. And here's the thing. A lot of people look at the gospel in this way. It's when I pray to receive Christ. And it is. But there's, as much as there's one gospel to explain, there's many aspects to that gospel. Many facets. That It's like a diamond. You can hold it up and look at different facets. And one of the facets is, is it's not about what happened back then. What matters is now. And so what I'm saying is, is that the gospel Gives you power now to be different. Now, it's hard. It is really hard to ask my wife. So all you got to do is so she'll give you testimony about me. Okay? It's hard. But the gospel is for here and for now. And so, in other words, it's not just for justification, but it's for sanctification as well. 
So let me give you three provisions that God gives us in that. And you can almost take these as applications, okay? The first one is this. Provision number one is God's law. That's right, God's law. Paul says God's law is bad, and he says God's law is good. Here I'm talking about it in the good situation. The bad situation is, is it does reveal our sin and it pushes us to Christ. Now that's not all bad, but it's, we know that we can't keep the law. But on the good end of it, it shows us how we live as God's people. So call this maybe the gospel law, gospel living, gospel truth. So most of the time when a couple comes to me for counseling, uh, you know what they say. Well, she did this or he did that. No, no, well, he did this and she did that. I have very, and I have had this happen before. I have had people come to me, and it's incredible, and they say, we've got a problem, and guess what? It's me. Every once in a while, I'll have that. But most of the time, it's all about, I'm frustrated with this, I'm frustrated with that, and how do we deal with that? And that's okay. At least they're being real. Okay? We're being real here. But the issue is, is that we have a problem. Now, if you look at Matthew 7, 7, chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, Jesus says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a big log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so how does it work? How do we know what a log looks like? The only way we know what the law looks like is to look at God's Word. You see, God's Word, His law, points it out for us. It takes us out of the completely self-indulgent culture, and it says, stop for a minute and think. This is not how I created you to be. This is not what I want you to be as my people. This is not the way to live. And so God graciously and lovingly gives us this law so that we know what it is to, to what it's like to live. Like even in the Ten Commandments, they sound negative, but there's positive aspects to them. You know, Thou shalt not murder. Well, what does it mean not to murder? It means all kinds of things. We don't think of it that way most of the time because we're sinful. But what does it mean to do the opposite of murder? It means to love one another. It means to care for one another. It means to have compassion, to love the poor. I mean, it means all sorts of things, you see. People, the law is good, and you ought to thank God for it. And if, and if here's the reality. If that's all He gave us, it'd kill us because it'd just, it'd just show us how wrong we are. But He gave us Jesus. He gave us Jesus. And though we can't do it, he gave us Jesus. So that's the next provision. He not only gives us the law, He gave us His Son, Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And, if, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. And it is by grace that you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is none of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the results of works, so that 
No one may boast. Do you see the plan of redemption opening up there? Even though we're in our sin, we're in our brokenness, He came to pull us out of that. That's why He came. And so He, the Father, gave us Christ. He gave us His Son. And He placed on Him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse 13 of Ephesians 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the issue is is that this is not only a hostility broken down between Jew and Gentile. It's a hostility broken down between man and wife. So what Jesus is saying is the war is over. You and your wife are one. Consider Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For what God has done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us to walk not according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. How incredible is that? He gave us his Son. But there's more. If this were an info commercial, it'd be great. There's more. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Provision one, he gave us his word and his law. Provision two, he gave us his son. And provision three, he gives us the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. Murray says says it this way. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And this means that the directing power in our lives is not the flesh, but the Holy Spirit. It is by the indwelling and and direction of the Holy Spirit that the ordinance of the law comes to its fulfillment in the believer. And by the operations of grace, there is no contradiction or opposition between the law as demanding and the Holy Spirit is energizing. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us grace to live like God has commanded us to live. That's what He's done. And so what happens is is that I want turns into how do I love you? How do I serve you? How do I care for you? It's denial. And you can't do that on your own. You can only do that by the power of the Spirit. That's why Galatians 5.22, I pray Galatians 5 almost every day. And some days I feel like I just, boom, boom, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short, I fall short. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit Not fruit of Brian Fisher. Not fruit of Stu Swanson. Not fruit of Ron Quintetano. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Now understand this. I am not presenting a magic wand here. This is not Harry Potter world. Okay? There's no magic wand here, and you're not going to weave the the Holy Spirit magic wand and forever be free and perfect in this life in the flesh. We're always going to be dealing with the flesh. We're always going to be dealing with indwelling sin. What I am saying, this is every time, and this is something that I have to work in my heart and mind all the time because I stray. Jeff and I were talking about it before the service. It's easy to walk away from the truth of the gospel. 
And so it's like I'll be a week sometimes. And I'm like, I see it, Lord. I haven't been taking every thought captive. I haven't really been crying out to you saying, Lord, help me. And that's what it looks like to do because the old man dies hard. And so I've got to cry out, Lord, I'm a miserable, self-centered person in my flesh. But your spirit is strong within me. And so help me live as you would have me live. By grace. I don't have to perform, to, to juggle, to look like, you know, uh, Barnum Bailey. I don't have to do that stuff to perform, to be liked. I just have to cry out to Him and ask Him for help. Because He's my Father and He loves me. And so, the word should be hallelujah. The law of the Spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. The gospel is God's provision every day, every minute, every second for life. For the relationships that I have between myself and God. And for the relationships that I have between myself and my wife. And for the relationships that I have between me and you. We have to ask ourselves the question. Are we living in these provisions that he's given us? If you never received him and his provisions, will you today? Will you today say, I'm, I know I'm not right here. I know it's all about me. The show is all about me. When the scripture makes it clear, it's all about him and his story and his truth and his glory. So will you come? Will you trust? Will you know that He is the one that gives you the will to live in oneness in a restored relationship instead of in brokenness? Let's pray.